reason you get sued may have absolutely nothing to do with your having done anything wrong. Somewhere there's got to be a line in the sand about who's in charge of what. We are not required under any circumstances to provide futile treatment. The Marine Corps says you never hear the bullet that kills you. The outcome of the case is going to depend most heavily on the show. So the electronic medical record is like a neurologist. It's incredible amounts of very specific information that's absolutely useless. Documentation is key to any litigation. Now if they can, they're going to name your parents for having a kid as dumb as you to miss the case. All I can think of whenever I hear that is, oh, you stupid person. Hello, good morning. It's Rick Bucata, April 19th, 9 o'clock. It's time to do the May issue of Risk Management Monthly. We're doing it this month over Skype. We've done it in the past with Skype. It's not quite the same as being there, but this is a fantastic service that you can subscribe to and watch video phone calls and that kind of stuff. On the line, we have Dr. Greg Henry from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Greg, you are basically going through the melting of the permafrost. This is your mud season, I believe, right now. It was 28 degrees this morning, Rick. Don't rub it in. From Woodland Hills, we have Melvis Herbert, about 45 minutes away. Melvis, hi, how are you? I'm well. I'm waiting for that mushroom cloud from Iceland to come. It should be here any day now. It's circling the globe first. It has to cover everything else before it gets to us. Um, This is yours truly, Rick Bucata. We're broadcasting from Baba Lou's house. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Michael Frank. Michael is MDJD. He's calling in from the world headquarters of Emergency Medicine Physicians in Canton, Ohio. Michael is a member of the senior management team of EMP and is responsible for keeping their 600 doctors out of medical legal house. Michael is a key part of their risk management course. They have a called the High Risk Emergency Medicine, and they do three a year. This is their 21st year of doing this course. They do it in March, April, and May, so the three live courses are pretty much over. However, if you're interested in attending this course, you can do it on the internet. Go onto their website, cemeorg and you can find out all the things that you need to know about it. Michael, welcome. I appreciate your taking the time with us. Glad to be here. Hi, guys. The format for today's recording is basically to, first of all, extract from Michael's brain everything that he has learned in his 20 years of risk management work in one hour. Do you think that's feasible? We might have 10 or 15 minutes left over, you know? Yeah, yeah. What are we going to do with the other half hour? Come on. (laughs) Yeah, I was expecting us to take around 10 hours, guys. Um, Michael, how long have you been doing this? Well, I've been practicing law for about 20 years, and I practiced emergency medicine for about 30 years, and I've been in my current gig with emergency medicine physicians for the past 15 years. There you go. So you have a tremendous amount of experience dealing with physicians, and we've taken the liberty of writing down a few questions to kind of guide us through this interview with you. One of the things I was particularly interested in is what are the recurring pitfalls that you've seen emergency physicians get into? We ask this routinely of all of our guests because everybody has a little different perspective. But if you were king, what would you do to limit the risk clinically? We'll get to the procedural issues in a bit, but clinically, what are you focusing on these days? Well, first of all, the role of documentation can't be overemphasized. And 
there's been some discussion and controversy recently, and I know that I'm a longtime fan of emergency medical abstracts as well as EMRAP, and I've been listening to a long time, and I know that there's some discontent with all the recommendations for documentation, and there's been some discussion. I think Al Sacchetti had a rant about all the requirements for documentation and saying that too much time spent in documentation and enough is enough. He's just going to stop doing that, and he's going to spend the time at the patient's bedside. And I can understand the frustration. Frustration, and that's perfectly okay to do that. But just understand that when it comes time for litigation, if you short it on the documentation, you're going to have to take your medicine like a big boy or a big girl at that point because documentation is key to any litigation. And a matter of fact, it might be that the case you never see is the case which was documented well enough that when it got onto the plaintiff attorney's desk, they took a look at it where they had some so-called expert take a look at it and realized that given the documentation, they really didn't have a case. And of course, when it comes time for actual litigation, the documentation is really your best friend. So if you're going to spend more time at the patient's bedside, all well and good, but just understand that the documentation is important when you get into the litigation. It's going to be your best friend. I've often used the phrase is the exception documentation, which means, you know, people write down the lungs are clear, the pupils are equal reactive, that sort of thing. But the thing that I find is bad is the exception documentation. That is, when things are going wrong, they've had an unusual discussion with an attending. Somebody is late in getting into the hospital. These sorts of things are never documented well enough to defend the doctor at the time of litigation. The medical record should reflect what actually happened. You should be able to figure out what was going on during the encounter by reference to the medical record. That's why so many templates and so many EMR forms are really inadequate because you can't figure out what's going on. We know this, for example, from our primary care friends who take a look at these records. They can't figure out what was going on and neither can anyone else taking a look at those records later. What you're referring to, Greg, also is in terms of figuring out what was going on, medical decision-making is critical to document, and also the course of what happened to the patient, not just the physical exam. But don't forget about the physical exam. You know, for example, if it turns out that a patient had a neurologic problem that was not well recognized, having documentation which actually documented, for example, five different parts of a neurologic examination is actually going to serve you a whole lot better than just saying neuro within normal limits or neuro not focal because that's not going to be very convincing to anybody. It doesn't really look like you did anything at that point. As I'm reconstructing charts for various lawsuits, what I notice is I not only know what happened, but I want to know when it happens. If I could do yeah. one thing to make docs better, I want to have a time down there that various things happen, because invariably in a trial, people start and they have a timeline, and they hang that up in court, and they want to be able to fill that in. So if you make a phone call to Dr. Smith, what time was it? When did he answer? When was he in the department? X, Y, and Z, because we're trying to reconstruct a play that took place two to four years earlier, and that can be difficult. Yeah, and this is where the electronic medical record is going to shine for us. Is actually one of the great things that computers are good at is timing things or measuring things. And we're just not very good at putting times down. So the EMRs will help with that. 
Although one of the concerns is that when you get into an EMR, the time that is documented is the time that you were there putting in this data. It does not necessarily represent the time that the action actually took place. And you have to keep on going back and saying, well, that's when I documented it, but I did it about 15 minutes before that or 20 minutes before that because physicians document intermittently, particularly when they're having to get into an EMR, which requires their password and their swiping and all of this other thing. I would think that there's a disconnect between the times in terms of when things actually happened and when things were documented that they happened. Rick likes, however, a different level of technology because we can, with your badge, record if we want to every time you stepped into a room, the actual time you were in and when you were out. And Mike, I'm sure, has had the same problem when they say to doctors, how many times did you revisit Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith? Because we're always very good at putting down this initial exam. And then there's all kinds of visits on a patient with an abdominal pain or with an asthma that we don't know how many times you saw that patient during their course through the emergency department. Can I ask a question of Mike? Okay, my question is this. Look, Al did this rant and he said, I'm sick of having to spend all this time documenting, Rick tells us that we're going to see fifteen or 20,000 patients for everyone that goes to litigation. So for 14,999, it's practice. Is there a middle ground? Can we do quick documentation on most people, but then when we think this could be a bad case, document more thoroughly? Are we able to predict in the emergency department in real time which cases are going to go to trial? Well, it's a great question. Unfortunately, the cases which really come back to bite you are the ones that you really didn't recognize as being bad outcome cases. I mean, sure, if you've got a case where you recognize that there's a bad outcome or that there might be a bad outcome, you want to document the hell out of it. But it's the cases where you didn't recognize it. For example, the little rash. And I know you've talked about this on Risk Management Monthly, the little rash, which turns out later to be necrotizing fasciitis. How are you going to recognize that later? Especially when you're in the very early stages of it. Every abdominal pain. Which abdominal pain is actually going to turn out not to be your gastritis or minor problem, but going to turn out to be acute appendicitis. I mean, the problem is we see these acute appendicitis cases, these ruptured appendicitis cases. The last one we got was the patient was seen two weeks before they ruptured, and yet they're suing the emergency physician for the evaluation two weeks before the rupture. Now, in that case, fortunately, we have a fairly good documentation, but in the absence of that kind of documentation, not being able to predict that two weeks later, this child would have a ruptured appendicitis. You know, the Marine Corps says, you never hear the bullet that kills you. And I think that's exactly right. If we knew it was going to be a suit, we'd all do a better job with it. But I think there are higher risk cases. Wouldn't you agree, Michael, that whenever you have the death of a child, for example, anytime there's a motor vehicle accident involved, there's going to be an attorney look at that case. What you're pointing out, Greg, is that litigation mostly depends on outcome and not necessarily on process or the kind of care that you provide. And the studies have been absolutely unequivocal that the chance of getting sued or the outcome in the litigation is more determined by an adverse outcome and the severity of injury than the actual quality of care provided. Michael, EMP is really very careful about its documentational process. And it's my understanding that When you take a contract, it's pretty important that you be able to dictate your records and that for the majority of your contracts, at least, you're dictating your records. The inference is that this is what you believe to be the best way to document. Is that really true or not? 
The gold standard still is a free text dictated documentation. That clearly is the best way to go. We've actually walked away from potential contracts where they insisted on a template documentation. Now, having said that, we're seeing something very new right now with the High Tech Act requirements with EMR because right now the incentives for the hospitals to implement EMRs are so compelling in terms of the financial incentives now and the financial penalties which will be imposed come 2015 that the hospitals are not listening to the same kind of arguments that we've had before. On the other hand, what we've been able to show the hospitals is that with the dictated documentation of the patient encounter, the cost of transcription can be easily overcompensated for by the increased revenue from documentation for the technical component that the hospital bills for from the documentation. And the fact is, all it takes is one bad lawsuit due to bad documentation, and you've lost any savings at all. I think a lot of times the hospitals are not taking a look at that when they're doing their calculations as to the high-tech incentives that they can get from implementing an EMR. Everybody's got the wrong incentives at this moment in time, I think, Michael, because if you ask the attending physicians what they want to get in their office the next day, they like a couple of concise paragraphs that actually told them why they came in, what they did, how they progressed, and what they have to do about it in their office. And all of a sudden, patient care and the transfer of this kind of information, one doctor to another, is way down the list. Billing, coding, all of that stuff have kind of taken over from actual patient care, which seems to me bizarre. Yeah, and we get this with the complaints from attending physicians all the time where there is an electronic medical record. They get all this information, which is just confusing, and it's very difficult to pick out the important parts that you talked about, Greg. What they get is they get data. Data is below information. Information is below sort of wisdom of the emergency doc as to what needs to be done here. And what I got continuously were complaints from docs when the hospital went away from free dictation, went to these incredible plates. They got 15 pieces of paper and no real information as to what the problem was with their patient because they don't have the time to dig through that stuff. So the electronic medical record is like a neurologist. It's incredible amounts of very specific information that's absolutely useless? You know, you're talking about many different things. When you say EMR, if you've seen one EMR, you've seen one EMR. We've had both failures and successes. We've overseen the decommissioning of EMRs implemented at three different hospitals, all of which decreased the physician productivity so dramatically. It not only decreased the reimbursement for the physicians below which we could actually survive, but it also affected patient satisfaction because when you start degrading your productivity from two and a half patients an hour to one and a half patients an hour it means the patients are waiting a long time and they're getting angry and they're leaving without being seen. Those kind of metrics are just anathema to the hospitals. And so in three cases, we've seen the hospitals invest six figures in these EMRs only to dump them within six months. On the other hand, we've seen some very good EMRs, which usually one of the components of those EMRs is that there is dragon dictation. The dragon has gotten very good, the voice-activated dictation, so that the physicians are able to add the kind of explanations which, for example, the primary care physicians need or one later needs to actually see what's going on. If anything can be put on one piece of paper and get an idea of the patient, that's what's going to be a success with all the follow-up physicians. 
because I'll just tell you, in the office of a family practitioner, they may get 20 or 30 or 40 of these reports after a big weekend. And for them to go through it and pick out what's important, I think is an incredibly difficult job. Well, Michael, it's pretty clear that EMP, if it had its druthers, would stick to dictated records. However, given the pressures of automation and all of these government incentives, you basically have gotten into a situation where you're looking at scribes, I understand, to help facilitate the documentation, but still not cut down on the productivity, which seems to be a recurring phenomenon when the people put in these electronic medical records. Have you had any firsthand experience with your use of scribes? Well, yeah, we've had several different ways of utilizing scribes, and scribes can be very cost-effective and can produce a great record. That may be the answer to Mel's question about the middle ground, where the physician is able to spend more time with the patient, and someone else is actually doing the mechanics of the documentation. Well, before we get on to the next question I've got for you, it's pretty clear that I don't think anybody's really looked at the return on investment when it comes to automated charting because we don't know that there's less lawsuits by doing automated charting. We do know it takes more time. We don't know that it has any effect on the quality of the care rendered to the patient because whether it has point of care decision support or not, often it's not there. So we're investing huge amounts of money where we're not quite sure what we're getting back at all. Well, what I'm sure of is that for people in a billing office, it may be more useful. But for those of us, and there are at least three of us on this call who remember when the emergency department chart was one page with a tear-off <laughs> sheet. At the, that's true, isn't it, Mike? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. sure. Yeah, and I'm not sure we've improved the quality of care by making it now 80. Isn't it a law that it has to be 84 pages when you walk out of there? Even the discharge instructions are 17 pages or something like that. It's unbelievable. Actually, it's great. We just did a paper in the abstracts looking at computerized discharge instructions and whether it in any way affected unscheduled return visits and compared with written discharge instructions, and there was absolutely no difference. Michael, can we move on to what trends that you see occurring in the lawsuit world? Strokes, infectious diseases, spinal epidural abscesses, where do you see the red flags? Well, actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to answer the first question with another point, which I think is very, very important in terms of what physicians need to understand. And it's a point which I try to make clear to the orientation which I give to all of our new physicians and also at our high-risk course. And that's understanding that medical malpractice litigation is not a search for truth. It's all well and good to talk about the standard of care, and we could talk about the different clinical problems and about the right way to approach those clinical problems. But the reason you get sued may have absolutely nothing to do with your having done anything wrong. And the outcome of the case is going to depend most heavily on the show. It's going to depend on what kind of appearance you make as a witness. It's going to depend on what kind of appearance your experts, the plaintiff's experts make. So if you're thinking that by practicing great medicine, that is going to spare you a lawsuit, or when you get to the lawsuit, that just because you did everything absolutely correctly, that that's going to mean you will prevail in the lawsuit, then you don't understand what litigation is all about. This is something that physicians have to be prepared for. And in that respect, Greg, one of the things that has been talked about is the role of experts and about the affirmation statements, getting experts to sign that they actually believe in what they're saying and that they'd be willing to be questioned about it and have it examined. And actually, I discourage the use of those affirmation statements because I'm not really worried about 
And I don't see much hazard from the really off-the-wall type of, from left-field type of expert statements. I love those guys because those guys are easy to deal with. You can really make them appear foolish in court. And some of our best trial wins have occurred with experts who, you know, we had one case involving a dissecting thoracic aortic aneurysm where the expert emergency physician testified as to the standard of care against the emergency physician defendant, the cardiologist defendant, the primary care physician defendant, the vascular surgeon defendant, and it was just great. I could have kissed this guy because the jury hated him. The jury saw right through what was going on. I mean, we polled the jury afterwards. That's after a trial. If a jury consents to it, you get to sit down with them and ask them some questions about how they deliberated and what kind of things they saw. And in this case, and I've seen this in more than just this case, the jury just hated this guy. I don't want to put a form in front of this guy and discourage him or discourage the plaintiff expert and actually incentivize them to go out and find somebody who's got better credentials or who makes a better appearance. What I see is really harmful and one of the things which makes life difficult for us in the defense are well-credentialed, well-respected physicians who are making judgment calls and basically testifying that their judgment about what a physician did constitutes the standard of care. And I'm sure, Greg, you've seen this. We see this a lot from physicians who practice in academic institutions. The problem that I see is not frivolous lawsuits. The problems that I see are lawsuits where there is room to differ, to differ in terms of opinions, where you can get somebody credible to testify in retrospect against a physician. Well, we're going to politely disagree on this one, Mike, only because... I think I've seen the expert witness reaffirmation statement, not only number one, with the fear of God in certain people at the time of deposition. I've seen people withdraw from cases based on it. And I had one woman recently who, when they confronted her on the stand with the fact that she had received a letter of censure from ASEP, which she hadn't let her own attorney know about, it essentially ended the case at that moment. But I understand your point. There's always those people who stretch way beyond credibility, and those aren't the tough ones. The tough ones are those who go just an inch or two beyond to say what we do at Yale or Harvard or someplace else, this is really what ought to be done instead of talking about what is actually done in the country. All right. Michael, can we get into your list of top five things we're getting sued for? Well, sure. One of the things that is a big surprise to us is the number of neurology or neurologic problem cases that we've seen. And actually, if you take a look at the textbooks, most of them say that most of the dollars that you lose in medical malpractice have to do with the cardiac cases. And our experience is a little bit different. Our experience is that we're seeing more of the cases involving neurologic problems. And I don't think that I've seen so many cauda equina cases. In the last 10 years, we've seen more of them than I saw in the previous 20. It's just pretty amazing. The stroke cases, of course, are everybody thinks based on not only what Time Magazine and USA Today says that if you have a stroke, all you got to do is go get some TPA at the ER and you're going to be 100% fixed. But basically, this is the kind of thinking that's being promoted by the proponents of TPA as an effective treatment. So this is a double whammy for us. We have expectations. And so whenever we have somebody who has a stroke who didn't get TPA, 
they're apt to sue, and we've seen a lot of those cases. The other big one which we're starting to see are the infection cases, especially sepsis, where the allegation is that goal-directed therapy was not used or that the sepsis was not recognized promptly enough, antibiotics not being given promptly enough. Those are some of the clinical things. The other system problems that we're seeing, and probably the biggest one, are the cases involving x-ray discrepancies. And the plaintiff attorneys have discovered these cases. Those are the cases where the patient may have been treated correctly, but the x-ray was initially misread by the emergency physician. The radiologist then does an overread reads it, identifies the discrepancy, and either the overread is not reported to the emergency department or it's reported to the emergency department and not reported to the patient. But in any case, the patient does not get the benefit of the proper x-ray diagnosis. And one of the reasons the plaintiff attorneys really love these cases is in most of them, they don't even need to allege that the emergency physician was negligent in reading the x-ray. All they have to allege is that the patient did not get the benefit of the proper overread. Some of these cases, for example, the missed fractures, as long as the delay is not too long, those cases, those can be problematic cases, but you're not going to see huge damages. The ones which are problematic, and we've seen a couple of these, one of which is still in litigation, is where there is a nodule, which is not recognized because the fact is we usually don't pay much attention to a nodule. If we've gotten a chest x-ray looking for a pneumothorax or a pneumonia, CHF and so forth, we may not be paying much attention to nodules. And where a radiologist overreads this and recommends follow-up with a chest CT to rule out a malignancy, and that information doesn't get to the patient, and eight months later, they're diagnosed with an inoperable or untreatable malignancy, those can be very dangerous cases. And to that extent, what needs to be done is you have to have an absolutely airtight procedure for making sure that x-ray discrepancies are identified and reported to the patient. And the fact is, you cannot rely on the radiologist's to make sure that that process works. In most of the cases that we've seen, the litigation is against the emergency physician. In very few of the cases, is the radiologist actually named and is there an allegation that the radiologist should have independently notified the patient? Well, I would only say, Mike, that in the cases that I do, I have seen more radiologists getting involved, but it depends at what level. For example, in the stroke cases, I've seen a few cases where there are residents or fairly junior radiologists who call that initial CT negative, and then all of a sudden the next morning, after the patient has bled into their head from the TPA, now they're saying, well, maybe that was a little bleed there that we just sort of missed. So I've actually seen allegations that if you're going to follow the standard of care, you're going to have the CT read by a neuroradiologist. Now, I can't believe that most of America can have a neuroradiologist at any hour of the day or night, but this is being alleged in some of the cases because that's how the NINS trial was done. That's how the ECAS-3 trial was done, was with neuroradiology level interpretation of the films. Sure. And you're seeing a lot of initial reads by these nighttime services like Nighthawk and so forth, and then you're getting the final so-called official read by the radiologist on staff at the hospital the morning after. And this is a case where documentation is absolutely critical. It's important that that initial read 
that, quote, unofficial initial read be documented and part of the medical record. And that may seem obvious, but we actually had one hospital where we had to duke it out with the medical records department, which claimed that those initial reads did not belong in the medical record because they weren't the official read. Wrong again. Of course it's wrong. But we actually discovered this because we went back and we found official reads were different than the initial reads, and it wasn't in the medical record, the initial read. And we found out why. Mike, I've been seeing some testimony from people on the infectious disease cases, which is nothing less than bizarre. If you look at all the infectious disease protocols, they really talk about two things, lots of water and early antibiotics. But I'm seeing cases now being filed that say, well, you should have put in a central line, you should have measured this, you should have done that. I think one of the problems with some of these experts is, particularly in stroke and infectious disease, is they tend to be zealots for their particular mode of therapy. And if you haven't done it that way, you're not practicing up to the quote-unquote standard of care. And whenever we oversell a therapy to the general public, we're going to eat it in these lawsuits. And that's what I was getting at before, Greg, and that's absolutely true. Whether it's the goal-directed therapy, you didn't give enough fluids, you didn't give it fast enough, you didn't admit to the ICU. The physicians, and especially this is true of the experts coming out of academic centers, who are all too willing to use their expert consultation as a bully pulpit for trying to preach what they think the way medicine ought to be practiced. Do you think there's a change in America or in the diseases I agree with you that when I look at my case series of spinal epidural abscesses, this has gone crazy. And I don't know why we weren't seeing them 30 years ago. I mean, we saw the same number of drug shooters, that sort of thing. But whatever it is, I think probably my series of those cases is now triple what it was 20 years ago. Well, there's no question we're seeing more of them. The question is whether we're just recognizing them now. I know that in my 30 years practicing clinically, I never saw a spinal epidural abscess. At least, I don't think I did, because who knows, maybe I missed one. We have a summons and complaint to deliver on you, Mike. I didn't want to put that up early on in the discussion. but I think you're past the statute of limitations, Greg. <laughs> but in the past five years, we've seen three malpractice suits involving spinal epidural abscess. It's extraordinary. The literature says they are more common. And there are more immunocompromised people who are doing fine. There are more people on steroids or more diabetics. There are more people who have had mechanical interventions in their back with screws and plates and bolts and nuts. And all of these things are predisposers in addition to the fact that there's a disconnect. Most of the physicians have not seen this diagnosis. It is a terrible diagnosis when it's far along in terms of its neurological outcome. So it's just a setup. So every emergency physician needs to be aware of the presentation and concerns associated with spinal epidural abscess because although it's a needle in the haystack, when it's there, you're going to get into big trouble. Rick, you're absolutely right. We need to be aware of it, but I'll tell you what, I write on this topic scientifically and I read a case this morning just before this phone call where all I could say to myself was, there but for the grace of God, I wasn't on that day because the patient had several visits which had No problem with bowel, no problem with bladder, no problem with motor activity, and then comes in with a bowel obstruction secondary to the neurogenic aspects, and so the patient is admitted to general surgery for two days before the abscesses are found. I sat there looking at that thinking, oh my God, if I'd been the doctor that day, it'd be my name on the summons and complaint. 
Yeah, and the other part of this is that even if you get the diagnosis correct, that doesn't mean the plaintiff attorney is going to back off from the suit because the other allegation that we're seeing very commonly is that, okay, you made the diagnosis correctly, but you took too long doing it. And this is, of course, very common in the stroke cases. They're saying, well, you took too long giving this, you took too long, and that's why you didn't give the TPA. We're also seeing this in the spinal epidural abscess cases. We're seeing it in the cauda cases. You can see it in the AAA cases. All they're saying is, well, you made the right diagnosis, but you took so long doing it that that was the violation of the standard of care. And that's what affected the outcome of the patient. And that's often basically very speculative. That's something which, of course, our plaintiff attorneys love that when they can speculate about it. Exactly. Can I ask a specific question about that? Look, we've just had two in the last week, and we at County have always seen a lot of these, but now are seeing an epidemic of them, an absolute epidemic. When these go to trial, they're often being seen by two or three people. Does everybody get named from, like, the birth of this person, even though they're now 45 years old? Do they go back to the initial presentation? Does everybody on this thing get named? And how does that sort of work itself out? Who, in the end, gets most of the blame? Well, if they can, they're going to name your parents for having a kid as dumb as you to miss the case. I'm sure Mike's had the same experience I have, but there's an addition rule in lawsuits, which is we add more and more people. There's rarely a subtraction rule, and they'll get everybody in there just to point fingers. Well, they'll not only get everybody in to point fingers, but they'll get everybody in because even if you did everything right, if the case looks really bad... And again, bad outcome, if you've got a very sympathetic plaintiff, sympathetic victim, the fact that it looks really bad can persuade a jury to award damages just on that alone. It's not an uncommon experience. And I know that a few weeks ago at a high-risk course, one of the attending physicians came up to me afterwards to share his sad story of having been named in a lawsuit and had an adverse verdict at trial. And when the jury was polled afterwards, the jury quite frankly said, we knew you didn't do anything wrong, but we felt sorry for the patient. And you can be horrified by that, but the fact of the matter is that's what litigation is all about. And if you're not able to address that, you stand a good chance of losing. If that's true, and I don't doubt it, is there anything I can do, let's say specifically in a spinal epidural abscess case? I've made the diagnosis of gone as fast as I can. I've given the antibiotics. I've sent them to MRI. Is there any documentation pearls? Is there anything that's lacking on those charts? Is there anything extra I could do that might help me out? It sounds like I'm screwed anyway, but is there anything extra I can do? Listen, I've seen one case, Mel, where the emergency doc was essentially dropped when it showed that when he sent the patient for the MRI at the same time, he called neurosurgery at the exact moment, and he didn't even have the MRI back. But what he had was a level of a lesion at T10, proper findings that says there's got to be something compressing the cord. He called before the MRI was back to get those people in there, and the plaintiff was impressed enough by that to drop him from the case. Now, the neurosurgeon said, well, you know, we'll take care of it in the morning. You know, if it's my spinal epidural abscess, you're going to come in and take care of it tonight because you don't get a lot of function back. If we could move on to another topic I'm a little bit interested in because EMP spends a lot of money doing patient satisfaction surveys down to the doctor level so that you can basically compare your physicians with regards to patient satisfaction. And as an extrapolation of patient satisfaction, I would guess complaints would be added into that as well. When you have physicians that are not doing well on their satisfaction, do you view that as kind of a red flag in terms of potential trouble with that doctor? Well, it's 
not just a red flag, but it's a competency problem. Because, for example, we often hear the phrase, well, he's a good doctor, but, and then they're going to say he's a good doctor, but his bedside manner isn't great. We disagree with that. If your bedside manner is good, no, you're not a good doctor. If you don't know how to talk to people, if you can't establish rapport with people, that's part of your core competency. And if you can't do that, then you're not a good doctor. Now, having said that, there are skills involved. Some people, it comes by naturally just get great patient satisfaction scores and it's not as if they're trying to do it, they just do it. Other people actually have to acquire some skills and to that extent we'll work with physicians. First of all, it's important to provide them with the feedback, the information alone. And some of the physicians just by seeing the feedback and being compared with their peers, for example. I mean, let's face it, we're a competitive bunch. And so we start seeing the scores and we see how other physicians are doing compared with us. And all of a sudden, it prompts us to do better. Also, as Greg has said, the Prescani test, it's an open book test. And so we make sure that our physicians know exactly what the questions are and know what they've got to do to score well and do well on that test. And finally, for those physicians who really are going to need some help, who may be trying and who are interested in improving, we do have a several-day course which we put on for our physicians. It's an internal course. We call it the Patient Satisfaction Academy, where we engage in training, which involves some actors who pose as patients, and we go through videotape training and review of those. And oftentimes, that's what's necessary to provide the physicians with those skills. We certainly don't just discard the physicians because they don't measure up to start with. There is an the attitude, though, Rick, that I think that Mike has probably seen as well as I have, that there are people who come into the business almost as if they get great patient satisfaction scores, they think they're not being a really good scientific doctor. The truth is, the two go hand in hand. Great docs right. almost always have great satisfaction scores, and it's simply because it runs together as a package. Tomorrow, I'm going to be speaking in Iowa just on the doctor-patient interaction questions because that's where they're falling down. It's not in the diagnosis of a colleague's fracture. Are you ever going to have much of a problem? It's how you handle the family of those kids is where the problem's going to be. And over the years, when I was head of a department, I probably fired two people in all that time because they were dumb. Everybody else got let go because they did not figure out how to interact with the attendings, with the patients, with the EMS. They always had something rude to say about somebody, and those were much bigger problems for a director than the actual medicine. Absolutely, Greg. That's been our experience as well. And we're also able to dispel the myth which some of those physicians who are doing poorly on Prescani hold dear, namely that, well, my productivity is great. I can't really do good at patient satisfaction. If I do, my productivity goes down. So which do you want? You want me to be productive or do you want me to cater to the patients? And that, we're that's able a lie to, right off the top. That's a well, lie right off the top. But we're able to do more than say it's a lie. We're able to show them the scores of the patients and we measure not only the patient satisfaction, but we keep a number of metrics, including the productivity, RVUs per hour, patients per hour. And we know we can show them that some of the physicians who are most productive in terms of patients per hour, RVUs per hour, have the highest Prescani scores. So the idea that the two are not compatible is ridiculous. By the way, Mike, we probably ought to get together and publish that paper. I don't think I've ever seen the paper, Rick, you probably know this, that shows that Prescani scores and productivity are not at odds with each other. 
No, I would agree. Michael, your Charm School for Doctors program, is that basically for the doctors who are struggling or is that kind of across the board? Actually, for the doctors who are struggling and can't make it, we basically tell them that, look, unless you improve, you're going to have to take this course or you're going to have to leave. But we open it up and we have lots of physicians who just want to take it to get better at what they do. Got you. Have you noticed, Michael, it makes a difference? Let's say you've got somebody who's had a few complaints that they're clearly having some difficulties with this bedside manner art. After they take your course, have you found that it actually makes a difference or is it this just one step towards being fired? There are two kinds of patients, Mel. It's a great question. There are really two kinds. Everybody improves after they take this course. In one group of physicians, however, the improvement is not long-lasting, and eventually they'll leave. In another group of physicians, probably the larger group, we can see the benefits to them, and those skills continue on, and they continue to maintain those skills. By the way, one thing we've picked up over the years, Mike, I'd be interested in your opinion on this. When I see somebody who's been pretty good for 10 years, and now their press gainies going down, the nurses are bitching, I usually find two things, domestic problems at home, divorce, that sort of thing, or drugs. Have you noticed yeah. that? Yeah, this is something, another part of what we do is try and have an early warning system and try and be alert for these possibilities. When we see someone who is all of a sudden, and it involves any kind of aberrant behavior, they used to dress impeccably and now they basically look sloppy. Someone who's all of a sudden taking a lot of breaks, who used to be uh, conscientious in the emergency department, now the nurses can't find them. They're taking a lot of breaks and so forth. These are the kind of behaviors which will prompt us to have our site director talk to the physician and also have a very hair trigger for getting them tested for substance abuse. We've had a number of cases where we've been able to identify physicians and provide them with help for this. And we've also had a few cases where we weren't quick enough on the trigger and we're not able to identify them as early as we should have or could have and been able to provide them with more help. It's always been amazing to me how the nurses know two months before we know the other doctors because we work with each other, but we don't actually interact with each other. We're physically there, but we don't pay much attention to what the other guy on shift is doing at that time. And the nurses seem to have a radar on this because they actually have to be in the rooms, talk to the patients. I think they're probably a better monitoring device than the other docs. Well, the other thing which we haven't mentioned yet is the stress from litigation. We know about that stress, and we have a very concrete program for dealing with it. We make sure, for example, that our site director is aware of litigation and is being able to monitor the physician for signs that something is going wrong. We have a group of physicians who have volunteered to provide support, and in order to protect this under attorney work product, I assign them to contact regularly the physician, the defendant physician, to talk to them about their case in a forum in which those discussions will still be protected, but in which they can unburden themselves and talk about the problems they may be having. And the fact is, we've had at least three cases where I've wanted to take the case to trial. I thought we had a good defense. The physician made a good appearance, but I had to settle them because the physicians were under such great stress and were having such problems with the case. Basically, they came to me and they said, look, Mike, you got to settle this case. I can't go on with this anymore. One of them was having marital problems. The other was having emotional problems and was basically crying every time she had to testify. You just can't go on with those cases. We had to settle them. I'm glad you mentioned that because in a lot of the talks I give about surviving the malpractice action, I don't think we as doctors understand the effect till we've been sued 
of the first day that summons and complaint arrives and then the burden until the case is dismissed. It's almost like there's a weight on their shoulders from day one, and we pretty much bring them in and their spouse. And I can't overemphasize that. We bring in the spouse as well or the significant other because they have to know what psychological problems they're going to go through during the time that that suit's active. And I have conversations, unfortunately, on a regular basis because 600 physicians can get into a lot of trouble. And so every time I have a physician, the first time they've been sued, I have a talk with them. And one of the things I tell them is, look, there is not a day that is going to go by that you're not going to be thinking about this suit. At some point during that day, you are going to be thinking about this. And just understand that you have to expect that. And it's going to be a long process. So it's going to be a long time that you're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about this. And you have to be prepared for this as being a preoccupation. And it's absolutely true. As Greg knows, and I know because in 30 years, I was sued several times. And any physician who's been sued will tell you that that's absolutely true. It's not the best day of your life, is it? Michael, can I ask you, you had mentioned how important it is to have a radiology discrepancy program, and but EMP has some other policies that they do which are very focused on risk management. I believe you have a policy that says EKGs are handed to the physician rather than put in the chart. Is that correct? That's correct. We also have a 10-minute rule. The EKGs have to be presented to the physician within 10 minutes. And there are a number of other policies that we have as well. And one of the things that we've done, for example, I know that you've dealt with this in Risk Management Monthly before, is about the epidemic of waiting room cases where patients are waiting in the waiting room, are not getting back and end up in cardiac arrest, or the case that we had where the woman with abdominal pain eventually left and delivered at home. We've actually defended two lawsuits of cardiac arrests in the waiting room where the emergency physician didn't even know about the patient until they were called to the waiting room to try and resuscitate these patients. And in both cases, we've been able to prevail. But of course, this is a very expensive and very stressful process for the physicians involved. And one of the things that the plaintiff attorneys hang their hat on in suing not just the physicians, but also the group, is the allegation that the emergency physicians are responsible for the triage of patients and for what is going on in the waiting room. And so what we've done is we've established policies where we've gotten in in black and white with the hospital that the hospital is responsible for the triage of patients and the monitoring of patients in the waiting room. The physicians are responsible for the care of the patients once they're brought back. And that actually has served us well. I think you've mentioned on Risk Management Monthly that case of the pregnant woman with abdominal pain. She didn't know she was pregnant and she was sent out. That's actually a Las Vegas case which has caused no end of controversy there. And the initial allegations against the emergency physicians were quickly dispelled when it was established very clearly that this was a triage nursing decision and that there was no responsibility on the part of the emergency physicians who didn't know about the patient. Michael, uh, help me so, here. Is this something reflected in the master contract between the group and the hospital, i.e. there's a clause which says you will assume responsibility for triage and monitoring of patients prior to entering the department? Is that where this takes place? Well, it's in two things. First of all, the contract makes it very clear that the emergency physician group is not responsible for operating the emergency department, which is a little bit more than just triage. Right. The triage policy is actually a hospital policy, which we ask the hospital to establish that hospital policy. 
I'm going to give you a review of a case at the end of this thing, $12 million case, where that was the issue. It was about who's in charge of the waiting room. Oh, yes. Rick, why don't you at this point give that case? You want me to do that? Yeah, let's do it now because this issue is hot, and I think that there are plenty of people. Mike's brought up a good point here that somewhere there's got to be a line in the sand about who's in charge of what. And the law loves bright lines in the sands and something called the four walls concept of contract. If it says so in the contract, it's sort of so. And it's interesting. We haven't discussed this idea in the past, the idea of formalizing the relationship of who's in charge of the waiting room kind of thing. Yet we see all of these cases now where people are having problems in the waiting room where they had the lady who died in the waiting room of some kind of aneurysm or something like that. And her video of it was on TV over and over and over again. I'm very familiar with the case in Las Vegas. The administrator of the hospital has been taking heat for months over that case. This is a case in Southern California where a 22-year-old came into the emergency department after being shot in the head by an air rifle. They're not quite sure where it was, under the skin or something like that, but she was perfectly fine when she came in. She was walking, talking, and so they kind of assumed, well, it's probably just in the skin someplace. And over a period of time, she didn't get seen very expeditiously. And over a period of time, she neurologically deteriorated. And by the time they ultimately identified that this BB was in her head and causing bleeding and she was neurologically deteriorating and was ultimately transferred to a hospital where they could do the needed neurosurgery, she basically became vegetative and remains vegetative. And there was a $12 million settlement, which is obviously going to be appealed. But that's a lot of money because we've had this discussion in the past. It's better that they die then they live and are incapacitated for the rest of their life because the vast excuse, majority excuse of me, Rick, Was that a settlement or a jury verdict? No, that was a Is jury it- verdict. As a matter of fact, they offered to settle, and the hospital declined the settlement and lost much, much, much more because they took it to a jury. The plaintiff's attorney, actually, was an emergency physician who used to work at our hospital, and now he's become extraordinarily successful here in Southern California, dealing with problems that generally focus in the emergency department. His quote was, the hospital gambled and lost when they chose to settle this case, and the hospital rejected that proposal. But in any case, it did focus on the waiting room, and as my understanding is that the emergency physician on in that case was let go, because they said this is the hospital's responsibility. And it's a miracle that he was let go. When you say let go, you meant drop from the case. Drop from the case. He was also let go (laughs) both ways. Well, in that case, they probably were not able to establish that there was any responsibility for the patient in the waiting room, as opposed to the cases that we've seen where that's the allegation. This was Bruce Fagel's case, wasn't it? Right, it was. Of course, he's not only a former emergency physician, but he's famous among plaintiff attorneys for having won the largest plaintiff verdict in California history in the order of some billion dollars. Whether that was actually paid is, of course, another. Nobody is collectible, Michael, at the billion-dollar level. Certainly not our own government at this point. Any other questions for Michael? Yeah, we got a couple here that I think are pretty good. Mike, what's your advice when an emergency physician sees a case going badly in the department? You know something's turning to stool. Do you have advice for those docs who are not terribly experienced? What are they going to do with the family? What are they going to do with the attending physician? What's the best way to handle these folks? Well, the first thing is there has to be transparency, even if it's embarrassing or even if it's difficult with the patient and with the family, because even if the worst case scenario is they get angry and they sue you. But the fact is, if you don't tell them 
and they probably will find out eventually, and then they're really going to be angry. And that kind of thing, when portrayed to a jury, where the plaintiff attorney basically convinces the jury that you tried to hide that, cover it up, that kind of thing really angers a jury. And the fact is, I've said before that litigation is not a search for truth and there's nothing ethical about the litigation, but the fact is, when we're practicing in the emergency department, we're not attorneys and we do have an ethical responsibility. And if you make a mistake and you know it's harmful to a patient, you have an obligation to disclose that. Now, you have to be very careful that you're not taking the blame for something that really is not true. We had a case where a patient who had massive ascites, which he accumulated from a chronic disease process, and it had gotten to the point where it was affecting his breathing. The physician did a paracentesis, and during the paracentesis, the patient arrested. Well, the physician assumed that it was because of the paracentesis based on what all of us were taught many years ago, and he apologized to the family and said it was probably because I took the fluid off too fast. <laughs> so the family brought a lawsuit, and that was the main allegation, that he admitted that he made this mistake, and he apologized for it. Well, I'm happy to say that the lawsuit was dismissed voluntarily by the plaintiff after they realized that actually the physician made a mistake in apologizing. And that's not what killed the guy. So what are the implications of that? Because we're being told we're supposed to tell patients when we screw up, but sometimes we think we screwed up when we haven't. Where do you think this is going? Should we be doing this? Is this good medical care? Mike and I actually debated this last year <laughs> at National ASAP, and the problem with I'm sorry and free admission doesn't recognize the complication of the emergency department, which is sometimes we don't know exactly what's going on in the emergent situation. I think Mike and I can agree that you want to be as honest as you can with families and keep them up to date. To kind of run in pulling your hair out saying, I killed your grandmother, is probably inappropriate as well. I mean, I think this has to be looked at by medical people off to the side a little bit to decide what actually happened at any moment in time. Yeah, and you know, the idea that just because you say you're sorry, you disclose things is good risk management strategy, and that's going to prevent a lawsuit. That's not really true. And again, if you really know that something was wrong, for example, in one case, we had a child was being treated for some kind of mild stomach complaint. He'd had some vomiting or diarrhea, and he had some IV hydration, which is basically all he needed. And there was an order for a cephalosporin, which was written on his chart. It was meant for another patient. So the nurses gave him the cephalosporin and unfortunately had an allergic reaction and was treated successfully for that. And it prolonged his ER stay for a couple hours, but he was fine afterwards. And there was no known allergy prior to that. Well, the emergency physician explained all this to the mother and she was very grateful. And of course, the emergency physician reported the case to me as an incident, as he should have, because we asked him to report these things to me. And then he told me the famous phrase, which I hear all too often, the family is not litigious, so I don't think they'll sue. And you can <laughs> laugh, Greg. Famous last words. Yeah, because yeah. all I can think of whenever I hear that is, oh, you stupid person. <laughs> Just... <laughs> So it wasn't all that long before we got the demand letter from that patient demanding $40,000 to settle this thing. We actually settled it for $3,000. So. What were the damages? Uh, two more hours in the emergency department is kind of well, hard. That, that's the problem. It depends on which department you're in, Rick. Would you want to be in the department at USC for another two hours? Give me a break. My friends are really going to love that. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Michael, I had a case last night, and this, for me, comes up more and more frequently, and I just want to know what sort of the position of your group is. So we had a gentleman who's 61 years old. He had a very bad cancer. Nobody had made him DNR. He came in, and he was pre-terminal, 
And I decided that to resuscitate this guy beyond sort of what would be humane to make him feel better, give him some morphine, give him some fluids, would really be, from my point of view, unethical. I mean, he had metastatic horrible cancer, yet a lot of people, because he didn't have an official DNR form, felt that we should be doing everything. We should be CAT scanning him. If he arrested, we should do a full resuscitation of this man. And I wrote in the chart that I believe that it was medical futile that we should do as much as we can to make this gentleman feel comfortable. And about 30 minutes later, he died. Am I at risk medico-legally? I feel my immortal soul is okay. I feel very good about this. I thought it was the right thing to do. But what about legally? Am I in trouble if the family says you should have done everything? Well, first of all, when you ask the question, am I at risk medico-legally, is sort of like the question people ask, can I be sued if? And the answer to that is always yes. Sure, you could be sued. You could be sued for anything. But the chance of your having any significant liability exposure is very slim. And the key word that you used, and your documentation was excellent, Mel, the key word was futile. The fact is we are not required under any circumstances to provide futile treatment. That is, there is no case that I'm familiar with that requires us to provide treatment which is recognized as futile. There's a common misunderstanding about DNRs, and that is if someone doesn't have a DNR, then they must be resuscitated. The fact is the physician is permitted to use their judgment encompassing all the different factors, including what the patient's life expectancy would be, what you understand of their wishes, what their medical problem is, even their age. You're actually allowed to encompass that as just one of the factors. When you put all those factors together and you make a judgment that the appropriate thing to do is to to just make the patient comfortable and not provide any life-saving measures. You are within your bounds to do so, and certainly when you've made the judgment that providing additional treatment would be futile, that you're not required to do that. This case has been tried in Massachusetts, and it was a case involving the Massachusetts General Hospital, a hospital which is not known for underworking up cases. And this was exactly the case, which was, can they go ahead and make a reasonable clinical decision of not to pursue the case? And the answer in that jurisdiction was, yes, the physicians can make a reasonable decision not to pursue futile care. And I think that our docs delude themselves into thinking they have to do everything for everybody. And it's not only uneconomical, but it ties up the department. It may actually take you away from patients who actually could use the care. It's very prevalent. It's an epidemic amongst not just the docs, but the nurses and the paramedics that if that little form isn't there, that equals in the current society that I must do everything. And you're saying that's just not true. Medical judgment's okay. Can I ask you then, in terms of documentation, I thought I did a pretty good job at documenting this, but what about that whole thing I got taught years ago about you should have two physicians write in the chart that this is medically futile. Is that something we should do? Well, first of all, that's unrealistic in most emergency departments in the country. There are certain situations, usually it involves withdrawing care, and this is sometimes spelled out in statutes, for example, in Ohio, to withdraw care would require two physicians to agree that the patient is either in a persistent vegetative state or is in fact brain dead. But aside from those specific situations, no, you don't need two physicians to make a determination that the care is futile and that you're not going to resuscitate. This yeah. is a letter from Nicole Durfee. Let me read it. It's pretty short. I work in a community hospital with a fast track that is staffed by mid-level providers. The mid-levels function independently and only consult an ED if they have questions about a case. Yet all mid-level charts are co-signed by the MD 
who was staffing the ED during the time when the patients were evaluated, I guess at the end of the shift kind of thing. Since the mid-level providers dictate, currently the MD cannot review the charts until they have been transcribed and returned to the MD by medical records, which takes generally three to four weeks after the care was given. (laughs) (laughs) I have asked for a new system, which the mid-level charts can be reviewed the same day. However, some of my partners prefer the delayed review. Their rationale is that if the chart is co-signed three weeks later and they have dated when they co-signed the chart, then how could they possibly be held legally responsible when they haven't seen a patient and and they signed the chart three weeks later? So they're using it as some kind of perverted defense that these records were signed so much later. What do you recommend? What is our responsibility for patients seen by the mid-levels when we are co-signing the charts? Thanks for your program. I enjoy listening to it each month. Nicole Durfee. Well, Rick, it's a great question, and it's one of many medical legal questions which surround the utilization of mid-level providers in our practices. Quite frankly, I don't think it's going to make a lot of difference. The key word here is that the mid-levels are seeing the patients independently. If they're seeing the patients independently without any real-time input, or evaluation from the supervising physician or the attending physician, then it really is not going to make much difference whether the counter signature is provided in several weeks or later that day. The only situation where it would make any difference is if the physician is actually reading through the chart, not just to countersign it, which in fact is what we see in those facilities where the mid-levels are seeing patients independently. The charts are being countersigned without really reading through the charts. That can be a problem with allegations of negligent supervision. But the only situation where I can see it would make a difference is where the physician reading through the chart recognizes a problem with what the mid-level has done and is going to be able to intervene at that time. But those are not the most common situations. So I don't think it's going to make much difference if they sign them that day as opposed to signing them in a few weeks. Well, Mike, my understanding is is that EMP has a very conservative point of view with regard to the use of physician's assistance, at least, in that your physicians will see essentially all of the cases that are seen by the mid-levels. And now we do the same thing at our hospital, but there are these hospitals where the doctors, here's a bunch of charts to sign at the end of the shift. And I often wonder, what does that mean when you put your name on the chart? I want to give you a counter opinion here. We tend to think that the mid-levels ought to see those things which are not quite as severe. The truth of the matter is, mid-levels could see a cardiac arrest just as well as I could. I think some of the most difficult cases in the emergency department are those that are not terribly obvious. The old lady who's dizzy. Whose job is it to see that? I think it would be useful for a place that is going to give the mid-levels this much freedom. They also had a list of disease entities or problems which must be referred at that time online to the physician who's in the department. I mean, let them take care of the cuts and the sprained ankles, things like that are not usually a problem. But there are complaints which probably ought to be run by the physician that day. Well, sure. I don't disagree with that, Greg. We're talking about those cases where the mid-level has not recognized that there's a problem which needs the evaluation of the attending physician. And Rick, you're absolutely correct. EMP has a policy where every patient seen by a mid-level has to be seen by the emergency physician before they are released or discharged to some extent. We also have our affiliate group on the West Coast, Emergency Physicians Medical Group, EPMG, has for years been using mid-levels in a different way. And in many of those sites, they see patients independently. And I can tell you, we've had lawsuits in both groups and 
in most of the lawsuits where the mid-level has seen the patient independently, the mid-level may be named, and the attending physician who signed off on the chart later either was not named or they were named and it was established that they only countersigned the chart later. And in most of those cases, the attending physician has been dropped and the suit has been pursued against the mid-level only. Now, this is particularly important because it brings up the point about insurance coverage. We do not have individual limits, so there is only one limit. And I can guarantee you that if we had individual limits so that there was an individual limit for the attending physician and the mid-level, then the attending physician would probably not be dropped. But Absolutely. given the fact that there are shared limits, there's only one limit, so it really doesn't matter, the attending physician usually gets dropped from those cases. So if we were to distill this down, we would basically tell Nicole, it doesn't seem to matter when those charts are signed. If the damage is done, the damage is done. And that signing them three weeks later is really not going to convey any different protection than if it was signed at the end of the shift. Yeah, the key is not when the chart is signed. The key is what kind of supervision is there? What kind of skill is there in the mid-levels recognizing when they need to involve the attending physician? There you go. Well, we have a little time here, so I'm going to do a little bit of summary because that was a CD slash tape slash MP3 slash iPod version that was absolutely packed with pearls. This Michael Frank guy uh, is pretty interesting. So first of all, they talked about the medical records, and the key pearl that uh, both Greg and Michael were talking about is that the medical records should allow you to follow what's going on. Now, it seems like a basic point, right? You should be able to read the medical record and get a picture of what went on in that emergency department. But I guarantee you that right now, if you go check yours or your partner's or your resident's uh, medical records, uh, most of the time you can't work out what the hell is going on. And so that is a problem. So good charting is about telling a story. Now, you don't have to write three billion words. They said just do a summary of what was going on, particularly the medical decision-making note at the moment the patient is leaving. Make it clear. Here's what we were thinking. Here's what we did. Uh, here's who we called. And it doesn't have to be long, but it just as a nice summary of what went on during that visit is really good charting and good charting is good medical malpractice uh, defense. They talked specifically about neurology as well, and we'll get back to this again, but if you've got a neuro case, do a good neurological exam and document it. You don't have to turn into a neurologist. You don't have to spend an hour with pitchforks and all the other stuff that they use. But if you've got a stroke patient, do a reasonable stroke exam. If you've got a spinal cord patient, do a reasonable neurological exam. It's not okay to write neuro within normal limits or neuro abnormal. You've got to spend some time on this. So that's important. Greg also suggested as you're documenting, times are important. What time you saw the patient, what time you called the consultant, what time you sent them for MRI or called MRI, that kind of stuff can really help you. And so uh, that is important. I suggested, look, all of this documentation, Rick tells us that we're going to document 15 or 20,000 times for every lawsuit that occurs. That's very inefficient. Why don't we just document well on the cases that we're worried about. Now, that sounded very logical to me, but I got smacked down and they said, uh, Mel, that's not how the world works because you are always going to document well in the cases you think are going south. Unless there's something wrong with you, you're going to go, oh, this is a bad case. I better write uh, a very good chart here. The problem is most lawsuits occur and you're blindsided by them, that you didn't know that the person was going to go home and have a bad outcome. They look good to you. And so, trying to sort of document just really well on the cases that you think are going to go bad, you're going to miss the boat lots of the time. Now, track two, we talked all about um, outcomes. Now, this is the depressing thing here, and you can overreach here, but the point was 
that a lot of lawsuits, one of the best predictors of whether you lose a lawsuit is young person, bad outcome. And so you can be the best charter and the best doctor in the world. If something bad happens to a young person, unfortunately, money will often change hands. The whole series of Risk Management Monthly, though, is about what you can do in those cases where there is the potential for you to win, and you win most of the time. But remember, young person, bad outcome, oi, it's stacked against you. And they were suggesting about, in terms of you know how you defend yourself, a good chart, as we've already said, is one of the best defenses. And we got into a discussion about, well, what's the best charting system? And I can tell you, as we've done this for three years now, it keeps coming up that tick systems and boxes Nobody likes those from a medico-legal point of view. They may be efficient, but most people don't like them from a medico-legal point of view. And Mr. Frank here said that uh, he still thinks that the gold standard is dictation, that you're able to really produce a very nice chart that's easily readable, that's very defensible when you dictate. They are more expensive, so hospitals tend to not like them and groups tend to not like them. But um, one lawsuit that goes for a million bucks that may have been prevented by really good uh, charting pays for itself instantly. So you need to put that into the algorithm. And we talked a lot about these new systems, these uh, electronic systems, these voice recognition systems are getting better all the time. And so you might be able to get an instant medical record that is dictated in the very near future. I know that Kurzweil and other people are working on these and some of them are very good and uh, it's something to, um, to consider. Scribes. Rick went on about scribes. He loves scribes because he thinks it makes the doctors at his place more efficient and the charting is better and the scribe is relatively cheap compared to the total amount of money the doc's getting paid and the group is making. So he really likes scribes. They talked a lot about computerized discharge instructions and some interesting le recent literature that says that it has done nothing, zero to reduce litigation. And I think that could have been predicted, that these reams and reams of paper are not going to help you. What you need, as Greg has said it before in this series, is a concise, to the point, here's where you go, here's what you do, here's what you come back for kind of discharge instruction. Giving patients textbooks about, you know, otitis media isn't really going to help us very much. And it sounds like the literature now bears that out. They then talked about what happens within a lawsuit when you get sued. And here is another key pearl that keeps coming up. This is not about a search for truth. If you have been sued and you think that you're going to go to court and uh, you're going to have your day in court and it's about the search for truth, you're wrong. It's a game. And it's unfortunate, but it's a game. And so you really need to be a good witness. You really need to have a good expert. And there's lots of ways that you can be a good witness and good expert, and you need to get trained in that. So don't think about this as the search for truth. Think about this as a game, and a game that you uh, probably are going to want to win. Uh, they talked about the affirmation statements from ASAP. There's a bit of disagreement there. Greg really thinks that it's been helpful. Michael Frank wasn't so sure that it's such a big deal. And this is that concept that if somebody's out there giving horrible expert witness testimony and getting us all sued, that uh, we should go to ASAP or AEM and uh, have them censured. And I think that that's actually a really good idea. We should get rid of these people. I have come across them, and I don't like them. They should not be doing this stuff. They then talked about where is the problem here? Is it frivolous lawsuits? Is it lawsuits that are completely ridiculous? And they basically both agreed, I think, 
that frivolous lawsuits will always be with us and they're not such a big deal. The problem is um, experts disagreeing with each other on subtle cases, on a sepsis case, and you should have given this or that antibiotic, uh, you should have given more fluid, you should have followed early goal-directed therapy. So that's actually, um, they considered the biggest problem. In terms of what are the top five reasons that Michael Frank's group is being sued and where they're focusing their attention, in neurology, it's the quarter equina syndrome, the stroke, and the spinal epidural abscess. So we've heard this before. Spinal epidural abscess is like tripled in the number of lawsuits in the last five to 10 years. So be on the lookout for it. Try and do the right thing. But unfortunately, it's one of those diseases that's just going to bite you in the buttocks. Sepsis was another one, a big one, not following the early goal-directed therapy guidelines. So come up with guidelines. Follow your in-hospital guidelines was a good idea. Have a system for not missing radiology. So you get x-rays, then they're overread and they say you miss something. You have to have a system in place. You've got to work with radiology. This keeps coming up all the time from the people who run these groups who know where all the money is going. They say you've got to have a system for radiology. Sepsis we already talked a little bit about, but they said, yep, this is being an issue because experts are disagreeing and uh, Greg thinks they're overreaching with uh, the utility of this early goal-directed therapy. And uh, again, the spinal epidurals, big, big deal. Now, um, the next track was about being nice. And this is a really important point I liked a lot. So we hear this statement that, oh, he's a really good doctor, but um, the patients don't like him very much. Or he gets into fights with uh, the other staff a lot. And Michael Frank's point was that, um, no, that's an essential part of being a good doctor. You may be able to put a chest tube in from 100 feet with a toothpick, but if you're getting into fights with everybody all the time and the patients don't like you and the staff don't like you, then you're failing because that is an essential part of being a doctor. And I love that idea. This idea that we can be psychos, but uh, really smart, that doesn't work. You have to be really smart and really nice and you can work on that. There are skills that you can develop. Disclosure. Little concern here about this idea that we should disclose everything. There's a right way to disclose errors, and uh, we're often, you know, some people, there was an example of over disclosing, oh, I did something and then the patient died, it must have been me. So this whole disclosure thing is working itself out. It will work itself out in the next few years. But don't jump on this bandwagon too quickly, too fast. We have to find the right way to disclose, or we could get ourselves into trouble. I talked about uh, futile cases and DNR orders, and I was very happy happy to hear that um, I'm doing it the right way. If you have somebody where care is futile, you can just write on the chart the reasons that you think it's futile, that you're going to give comfort care and allow people to die. Just because you don't have a DNR order doesn't mean you have to resuscitate everybody. If somebody's dying with metastatic cancer and weighs 50 pounds and they don't have a DNR order, you can say if their heart stops, they're dead. It's over. We can't reverse this disease. And uh, that makes me very comfortable because it does come up all the time. So futile care is futile care. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the May edition. Let's do wine of the month because we all know that wine of the month is the most important part of risk management monthly. Greg, do you have a wine of the month for us or something to that effect? I do, as a matter of fact, Rick. And this one, in keeping up with the demands of our audience, which is they want it cheap, they want it by the gallon, they don't want to hear of any expensive wines, there's one called... Mirasu, which is California. They make both a Chardonnay and a Pinot Noir, and these are rated in the 87 to 90 range, 12 bucks a bottle. We have now hit Mel's price point. Is that right, Mel? Actually, my price point is five bucks. (laughs) (laughs) In any event, Mirasu, M-I-R-A-S-S-O-U, 
and they can be ordered in California. Well, actually, yesterday we went to Costco and Diane tried some Kirkland wine. I've got Kirkland underwear on. I've got Kirkland pants on. Now they've got wine. You're using the Kirkland Viagra. It's just... That's right. That's right. It doesn't work. Um, the fact is it wasn't really very good, but we still have access to two buck chuck over at Trader Joe's. Yeah, but it's four bucks now. No, actually, it's still $2. That's I asked her. But in any case, Michael, you have a certain affection for the fruit of the grape, my understanding is. I do. But then again, Greg's at cheap wines here are not going to cut it, I don't think. I think looking for the cheap, great wines is really a lot of fun. Some of the greatest wines are relatively inexpensive. I love doing that. Well, I think that that is the May issue of Risk Management Monthly. Mike, I'd like to thank you very much for taking your time and sharing with us your tremendous experience and telling us a lot of what EMP does to limit its risks. So Thanks again, for thank having you very me. much. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Michael. Greg, you want to say something? Just stay tuned next week. I'll see if I can find another wine under $12 (laughs) so that Mel can restore happiness to his life. Mel, we're looking for you. Thanks a lot. And for all of us here at Risk Management Monthly, bye-bye. Bye.